Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with John Anderson, the chairman of Triumph Gold Corp., trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and as NFRGF in the U.S. Triumph Gold Corps is a mineral exploration company currently focused on its 100% free gold mountain project in Canada's Yukon. This road accessible property is located in the Dawson Range Gold Copper Belt, host to the Casino Copper Deposit, the Coffee Gold Deposit, and the Plaza Gold Prospect. Triumph Gold Corp. has a leadership team with a collective history of exploration success as well as capital raising ability. John, thanks for joining me today on the program. Thank you, Alice. I appreciate being here. If you don't mind, give us an overview of Triumph Gold Corp. Triumph Gold is a company that has been around actually since 2006. It was put together under a different banner ad. It was called Northern Free Gold Resources, and I got involved originally as an investor in the company's IPO in 2006. And what was so attractive about it is the prospector and founder of the company had put together a significant land package in the Yukon that was a district size scale of over 200 square kilometers and really pretty much ahead of any of the Yukon explorers that you heard of afterwards. I was just recently in the Yukon and I was amazed by the landmass, the size of the projects and just the space in general. Yeah, Yukon is, if you look at the whole Alaskan down to Chilean belt of properties and you look at all the areas where the, the big mines are and a lot of exploration activities have gone on over the last 40 years, there's a few areas that have been neglected and pretty much for geopolitical reasons. And the Yukon was one of those victims from 1990 when the NDP government got involved in BC and Yukon, essentially cut all exploration that was going on in the 1990s, which was the first real stage of modern exploration. And it wasn't until the Yukon government got control of its natural resources in 2003 from the federal government that was actually able to attract outside capital and modern exploration techniques. And, and that's what Bill Harris, the founder, was so fortuitous to put together. One of the things that can be an issue in the Yukon is infrastructure. Some projects are quite remote. However, the Free Gold Mountain Project is road accessible. It is. That's probably the thing that attracted me most about it because one of the negatives about the Yukon is how expensive it is to operate. And, and part of that is because everything's got to be helicopter assisted because of the remoteness of it. And that's why Bill did put it together outside of growing up on the property as a, as a prospector himself. Had all the government maintained roads going right through the property from one end of the property right through to the other end, which is over 20 miles long and had over 80 years of work. And really, I think that's more than anything why Bill put it together. You really have to know the area and connect with the local prospectors to assemble the right land package and to be ultimately economic. Yeah, absolutely. The local knowledge is king up there. It's becoming less and less so, but in the early stages and, and even now when you're doing grassroots exploration and putting properties together, there's a lot of local knowledge. And a lot of the information that was relative to properties in the Yukon go back to generations of work that was done by people that was really word of mouth and, and there wasn't really a lot of government data that is now prevalent there. So the local knowledge, the local prospector and being involved as a, as a Yukoner was really important. And that, again, that, I can't say enough for how fortuitous it was for Bill Harris to put that together. You announced on June 7th a drill program underway at Free Gold Mountain. It's a 13,000 meter program. When can we see some preliminary results? 
Yeah, this is the first time we've worked on the property since 2012. We did some work in 2013, but actual drilling, 2012 was the last time there was a pass on the property. There's over 28,000 meters that was done over two years and, and then another 4,000 meters beyond that. We took that time off after we reorganized the company, didn't just go back and start drilling right away. We want to have a different look at it, different approach to how we were going to handle the property and not just increase the significant resources we have. Look at new geological ideas and that's what attracted the investment that allowed us to move forward. So we started drilling with one rig in early June, I had another rig and we're trying four different new target areas of the property and, and we've actually finished on two. Just with the amount of activity up in the Yukon right now, we're not going to unfortunately see a lot of or any news really until early to mid-September at the earliest. Speaking of all the activity in the Yukon, we have five or six majors there, as I recall. Your property is uniquely situated in that regard. Let's talk about that. It is. I would say one of the interesting things from that 2006-2007 initial flurry of activity is Ken Ross went in and bought Underworld for a couple hundred million dollars and nothing was really done afterwards. It wasn't really until Kamenak, who is just north of us along Trend, paid $520 million and bought Kamenak. And and that really reawakened the whole Yukon and particularly the Big Creek Fault where we are and, and what's being promoted as the White Gold District. After Gold Corp came in just over a year ago, there was really, uh, I think what's referred to as the Gold Corp bump in the Yukon, and that attracted other majors. So subsequent to that, you saw Nico Eagle come in, Barrett came into uh, ATAC, and Newmont's back, and, and there's a couple other majors that are sniffing around, obviously in Whitehorse, and it's bringing a lot of credibility to all the exploration and the projects that are going on in the Yukon. What can we expect to see with Triumph Gold over the next year? I think the first thing will be the drilling results that we have coming out of these four new areas. I think that'll be the one component that will bring some eyes to the site. But I think Gold Corp and the effort that they've put into Kamenak's property up north They've made it very clear that they're looking for a district size play. We're right along geological trend with the Big Creek Fault, but we're also along a geographical trend, which is all that infrastructure I explained to you before, where you've got government-maintained road going right through our property and also connecting to the uh, Alaskan Highway, which is about 40 uh, kilometers away. So are you saying that you're potentially an M&A target? I would say we're an obvious M&A target. We have a substantial resource base. We're going back and expanding on new geological ideas. We're not going to increase that resource this year, but I think we are going to increase the visibility of this property. With regards to Gold Corp, their investment is strictly an equity investment. They don't have a direct play or a direct call on any of the projects, any of the deposits that we have, or any of the targets we're drilling. And I think that's what's separating Gold Corp's investment from all the other investments, where you've seen Barrett come in and you've seen Newmont come in, and they've put some equity into the juniors, but they've also really putting money directly into the project to earn direct project interest in it. And the last thing we wanted to do was find a partner that wanted to really control the whole project. They've been phenomenal to work with, and they're encouraging us to explore these new ideas. But again, I think our relationship with Gold Corp is is a little different than most of the juniors that are out there with majors. If you don't mind, John, tell us about the company's share structure. Relatively, we've got 60 million shares outstanding right now, 85 million fully diluted. We've got $7 million cash, which will go through a lot of that this year. We expect to have 2 million left at the end of this year based on this year's exploration project. But our shareholders are very strong. When we got together and planned for this next program in the company, we got Gold 2000 that came in for a 10% equity interest. A company called Palisades Capital who have been really effective and really helping build the story and adding to their position. They own about 16%. And then just in March, 
March of this year, we attracted Gold Corp, who came in for a 19.9% interest. So directors and management owning another 10%. We got a pretty tight share structure, and everyone over the last couple of years is actually added to their positions. What would you say to potential shareholders considering your company and others in the space? Why should they consider becoming a Triumph Gold shareholder? We uh, offer incredible leverage to the gold price. We have 3.25 million ounces of gold. We also have 280 million pounds of copper. And if you use the gold equivalent, today's prices, you're, you're about 6 million ounces. So just taking the 3.25 million ounces out and divided by our market cap, we're trading about $6 an ounce on the ground, which is really inexpensive considering a lot of our competitors are trading around $30 to $40 right now. You look at the Kamenak takeover by Gold Corp, that was almost $100 an ounce at US. So we've got incredible leverage. And as the gold price goes up, those ounces will become a lot more valuable. John, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for joining us today on the program. Thank you, Ellis. I've been speaking with John Anderson, the chairman of Triumph Gold Corp, trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and as NFRGF in the U.S. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Paul West Sells, President and CEO of Western Copper and Gold, trading as WRN on the New York Stock Exchange and WRN on the TSX. Western Copper and Gold is solely focused on developing the world-class casino project located in the politically stable Yukon Territory. Currently in the permitting phase, Casino is poised to be the premier copper gold mine in Canada and the flagship mine for the Yukon. Western Copper and Gold, through its wholly owned subsidiary, Casino Mining Corporation, is committed to developing the casino mine in a manner that provides economic opportunity for all involved, while maintaining the highest levels of social and environmental practices. Paul, welcome back to the program. It's great to be back here, Alice. Now, we've seen some activity in the copper market that's been quite astounding lately. Do you think it's going to maintain itself? This has been probably the most exciting week in copper that we've seen in a long time. We saw copper yesterday go up 10 cents in one day. And I, I was just reading this morning, overnight it actually hit $2.90. I mean, these are levels that we haven't seen in years. And our company, Western Copper and Gold, on the back of that was you know up over 10% yesterday in the U.S. markets. And I think that you know we've been talking about this for years, that this is going to happen, that there is a supply deficit out there. And so any sort of nervousness in the market results in significant price movements. What's the driver in July, though? Yeah, it was it was interesting. You know, you think middle of the summer, everybody's relaxing, and why see a big move? What it goes to show is just really how people are waiting for this to happen. And so what happened is that the IMF came out with basically positive recommendations on the growth in China. So China growth, they confirmed that they believed it was going to be around 6.7%. They also came in and had positive growth recommendations and increased positive growth recommendations for both Europe and Japan. And then they maintained their growth for the United States and North America. So they put bringing that all together, that drove up the price of oil, that really drove up the price of copper. That combined with really some weakness in the U.S. dollar is what drove up the price of copper yesterday. And gold's doing well as well, isn't it? Yeah, and we were certainly seeing some stronger economic growth in China and, as I said, in, in Europe and in other parts of Asia. The U.S., you know, I always think of gold, people buy gold when they don't feel comfortable buying U.S. dollars. And U.S. is still, it, it's in a bit of flux right now. I mean, this big stimulus that 
Trump has promised. We're still waiting patiently for that. I think it's going to come, but it's not going to be this year. And I think people are buying gold as opposed to U.S. dollars on the back of that. So the big story with regard to base metals and metals like copper as well back in October, November, December was, of course, the fact that Trump got elected and all the infrastructure going on in the U.S. But that's irrelevant, evidently, to the price of copper, considering you just referenced Europe and Asia and China specifically. So uh, we're not seeing any sort of contraction at all in the copper supply while it may be in the ground, it's not production yet. That's exactly it. And I look at the price of copper and, okay, we were at $2, I mean, a year ago. We were at $2 and it was staying there forever. I mean, that's how far it's moving. And now we're almost at $3. I mean, this is for a, a large commodity. It is the largest metal commodity that's traded out there as copper. I mean, this is a massive commodity to see prices up. Now we're talking almost 50% is significant. But that is still not a high enough copper price really to see any significant new copper production come online. You need $3 copper, you need probably $3.50 copper to see new production come online. So that's why you see these big moves. Why does it move so much so quickly? I mean, oil moved a bit, but it moved $5, $10 a barrel. You're seeing these big moves in copper because the market knows we need this $3 in order to bring this new production online. So as the supply, the demand imbalance and the projections of the supply demand imbalance increase, the copper moves up to provide that incentive to build more mine. How long does it take to bring a project online into production? It really, you know, it depends where it is. So, I mean, with ourselves at at Casino, I mean, that's really what we've been trying to do is make sure that, you know, we have the permitting in place, we have the engineering in place, so that this project is when people want to start building copper mines again, which is, you know, as I've said, right around the corner, we're one of the ones that, that they can turn to to bring this copper online. But if you just have a project on the shelf, you've got to update a feasibility study, that's a couple of years, and then you've got to get it permitted. And permitting is, you know, depending on your jurisdiction, probably starts at three years. And, and you know, in certain places in the United States, you're talking 10 years. Why does Goldman Sachs believe you're the most viable copper project in the world? You know, I mean, when Goldman did their analysis, um, and they've just come up with a new one, and and we look really, really good again, you know, it was interesting reading that Goldman report, and the most recent one that came out a couple weeks ago, because what they said is they said, if you look at the copper market, again, they now see the light at the end of the tunnel, which is we need new copper mines, and they specifically say, expect M&A in the sector, because the good projects are in the hands of junior mining companies such as ourselves. What kind of M&A can we potentially expect with Western Copper and Gold? Well, (laughs) hopefully something that benefits all of our shareholders, or or else we won't do it. It's an exciting time, and I can't really speculate on on what that's going to look like, but we've seen all this excitement in the gold space, in the Yukon, I've been waiting for the copper space to be the last part of the story. And now that that's starting to happen, we're incredibly well positioned. I mean, total resource of 18 million ounces of gold, which is interesting to any gold company. 10 billion pounds of copper, this sizable copper project. And we're in really, let's be honest, the hottest jurisdiction, mining jurisdiction in the world right now up in the Yukon with major investment, lots of activity. So yeah, we're answering lots of phone calls and then we'll see where things go. Do you think we'll see a copper run in the fall? I think that question right now is, is it going to stay at this now, this 280? I think it is. And I think that we're going to see $3 copper before the end of the year. You know, one thing I've got to ask, Paul, is why did your 
share price. Western Copper and Gold move up so much in accordance with the price of copper as compared to potentially other companies out there? Well, that's a great question. And really, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, there's not that many companies. You like the junior market because it gives you leverage to metal prices. You want to buy a good copper project in a good jurisdiction. You've got maybe three names, and we all went up. And then the second reason is you look at the casino project and the jurisdiction that we have, the gold credit that we have, and the size that we have makes it absolutely perfectly levered to the copper price. And it makes it a great M&A candidate, and that's why we move up with the copper price as much as we do. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you very much for having me. I've been speaking with Paul Westsells, President and CEO of Western Copper and Gold, trading as WRN on the New York Stock Exchange and WRN on the TSX. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Eric Owens is the President and CEO of Alexandria Minerals Corporation. Alexandria Minerals Corporation trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AZX and in the U.S. as ALXDF. Alexandria is an active, growth-oriented Canadian gold exploration and development company with strategic properties located in the world-class mining districts of Val d'Or, Quebec, Red Lake, Ontario, and Snow Lake, Flint Flon, Manitoba. Alexandria's focus is on its flagship property, the large Cadillac Break Property Package in Valdor, which hosts important near-surface gold resources along the prolific gold-producing Cadillac Break, all of which have significant growth potential. Today, I'm speaking with Eric at the Sprott Vancouver Natural Resource Symposium. Eric, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Alice. Pleasure to be here. What's your experience here at the Sprott Conference? What's it been like? You've met with some people that are investors in the company and some perhaps some new investors? Yes, all of those, all of the above. It's been a very interesting show and we've met some very prominent and interesting people and very important people who are, some are new that we've recently been developing relationships with and amongst those being some of the newsletter writers, some of which are very important to us and other investors that have just started now taking a look at us as a result of our recent drilling activities and press releases. Well, let's talk about today's press release. You have, from what I can see, 375 grams per ton over 0.45 meters in the Ornata Zone 4. Yes, so it's pretty significant. The real significance here collectively, that was, of course, the highest gold assay that we've ever had at Zone 4. So it was kind of fun to see those things, of course. But the real significance of that assay, together with all the others that we report here from nine holes, are that these are early stage step-out holes, new exploration in a new sort of untested virgin area. So we're just trying to get a feel there. Do these veins that occur in the main Zone 4 area, do they extend further out? And so the good thing is that these holes represent a, a giant leap out a long strike from this gold deposit we're building. I understand this is still pretty early stages with regard to the step out, but you expect that this could significantly increase your indicated resource at the end of the fall? Yes, I think, like you say, it's early and I'm always hesitant to over-speculate too much, but these are good indications that the gold mineralization that we see in the main core area at Zone 4 actually extends beyond where we've been testing now. This is an additional 400 meters, which brings the total length to the gold vein sets that we see there to about 1.1 kilometers now, just in the Zone 4 area. Well, you have a significant land package over there, and you'll be exploring for quite some time, won't you? Yes, we can see what we're doing now is just the beginning of a, a much bigger projected effort at building the gold resources there. 
We think with our current 30,000 meter drill program, which is underway now, we will conclude that in the fall time by early to mid or maybe late September, and that'll be used to provide a new resource update, which we expected more than double from where we sit now at resources at Zone 4 and Zone 2 is about 550,000 ounces. We think we can double that by the end of the year, and that's, as I say, the first stage of a broader multi-year stage of building this even larger to two, three million, multi-million ounce deposit is what we're aiming for. And we have a lot of potential growth along strike, and that's the significance of these results today, is that we have a lot of potential testing to do along strike for several kilometers, both east and west. Let's talk about your relationship with Sprott. Yes, it's, it's important you bring that up because the Sprott relationship has been somewhat of a game changer for Alexandria. It's one of the two really significant events that has happened in the past year or two for Alexandria to bring us here where we sit today. They have provided investment monies and funds for us, of course, to do the work we're currently doing, and that's important, of course, but more than that, they have been really championing us quite a bit to the investment public, and that's what Alexandria has needed over the years and, and has kind of lacked over the years, a champion. And, and now that we're sort of in the Sprott umbrella here, we're certainly seeing that, that effect. We're, we're getting to meet a whole new crowd of investment types, and even though the market in the mining markets and the gold markets is still a little bit sticky, we're finding increasing interest and increasing following in what we're doing. I've met some people here who are very new to the sector. They're investors. They've come up from Alabama. They've come up from various places in the U.S. and they're really interested in the sector. And they've never they've never dabbled in it before. Yeah, well, it is interesting. Of course, that's a testament to the function of this event. Is sort of Rick Rule's really efforts here, and, and of course, Rick being based in the U.S., he brings a lot of Americans up to the conference here. And I think uh, it is also a testament to what people think about gold in general. I think. People are saying, well, maybe there is a role for gold in my investment portfolio. When you look at currencies around the world, total debt loads around the world, people are probably saying, well, maybe uh, I need to start looking at gold. And as some of the speakers here have said, investing in a gold mining company or a gold exploration company gives you more growth potential on the price of gold. It's a premium over the price of gold. Well, Eric, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thanks for joining me here in Vancouver today at the Sprout Conference. Thank you, Ellis. I've been chatting with Eric Owens of Alexandria Minerals Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AZX and the U.S. as ALXDF. Download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and on your TuneIn Radio app. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvercorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVM. Silvercorp is a low-cost silver-producing Canadian mining company with multiple mines in China. The company recently commenced commercial production at its GC project in southern China. The company's vision is to deliver shareholder value by focusing on the acquisition of underdeveloped projects with resource potential and the ability to grow organically. Today, 
today. I'm speaking with Gordon at the Sprott Vancouver Natural Resource Symposium. Gordon, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ellis. Thanks for having me again. Now, this is a very interesting event, the Sprott Conference. Are you finding you're having a lot of conversations with current shareholders and new shareholders or potential shareholders? Fine, there's a lot of current shareholders and some new potential shareholders. And there seems to be an excitement in the room and in the crowd about what's happening in the markets. And it is summer. It's a little slower than normal. They're interested in what we're doing. Well, this event is well attended in July. Yeah, the way Sprott sets it up, it's a compelling group to come to. The Sprott group really knows metals well. And I think the investing public, the fact that they take this time in the holiday season to come and look at metal companies is a testament to how good they are at advising people. Let's talk about Silvercore and its relationship with New Pacific. Yes, New Pacific, which is a sister company of ours, just closed a $32 million financing. Well, it was 34, was oversubscribed. New Pacific bought seven properties in Bolivia. And Silvercore now owns 31% of that of New Pacific, and Rui Fang, the chairman, owns 10%. Speaking of Rui Fang, he likes projects that have high grade and that can go into production fairly quickly. I can say that potentially New Pacific could go into production within two years? I'd say two to three years. It's a high grade situation again. It's silver with some tin. It's a very large system. 1.5 kilometers long, 100 meters wide, about 300 meters deep so far. It looks like it could have some real scale and legs to it. It will be open pit for the first 200 meters, so if this thing holds up. There's not a huge amount of holes in it yet. On surface and what we can see so far and through channel sampling and the holes that we have drilled, if you look there on the website, it looks as though this could be a very large system with good grade. Well, I've seen some grades as high as 350 grams per ton out to about 150 meters or maybe just half that. Even 75 meters is quite substantial. Yeah. When Rui went down in October of last year, it took Alex Zhang, who's our uh, vice president of exploration. They got this property from a couple of Chinese vendors and Chinese have been in Bolivia for about 12 years, and they've got good relationships with the locals there and with the government. So this was a private deal through Chinese connections, and they were able to secure it. Once they went out on the ground and looked at it and looked at the data and looked at the core that was, they say they didn't sleep for two days. Literally, they didn't sleep for two days because they were just so excited. The next time they went down, they went down for 20 days, did their work, did confirmation drilling. Everybody that I've showed this to so far, and it's limited, we went to Toronto, Rui and I, we weren't really raising money because we had the money in hand. The geologists initially said, Bolivia, why are you in Bolivia? But then when we showed them the geology, which is it's Cretaceous sandstone with silver infused in it. It's an epithermal system, but epithermal sandstone systems with silver are rare, and it's a big system with grade. They forgot about Bolivia and just went, excuse me, can I get down to see the project? So when geologists and analysts in Toronto start forgetting about the jurisdiction and want to see it, it excites me too. Well, that's the biggest thing if you talk to a, a geologist. <laughs> uh, it's the jurisdiction and evidently geology trumps everything. Yes, but they are geologists and they're interested in mineralization and that's what they do. And they don't really care where it is. Now, we have to care where it is for shareholders because it is a jurisdiction that's not that well known. One fund manager that I went to see in Toronto said, no, 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 I'm not going to see you because it's in Bolivia and we don't do Bolivia. And I said, look, I just want you to look at the geology. By the end of the meetings, he actually actually asked as well, can I come down and see it? So for geologists, the geology trumps jurisdiction, but we now have to make this work. And I say we, we own 31%. Silver Corp owns 31% of the company, as I said. Rui Fang owns 10. We put 
15 or 16 million dollars into the deal. We have uh, yeah, 100 million dollars, so we've got uh, 85 million dollars left in our treasury. But this is a pretty big move for us to show that this is something that we believe in. We want to own a lot of it because we think it'll actually, if we get it into production within two to three years, it'll throw off significant cash, and I think we can make it profitable fairly early. Now, that's these are early statements. I'm doing a lot of arm waving here, but we'll see if I'm right. Well, the company's trending over a dollar. How are you finding your shareholders are responding to this overall? The company was originally a mining company and then went to be an investment issuer during the downturn. So it doesn't have a lot of liquidity in it. So it's hard to tell right now that the movement in the markets are not large. It's a new story. Nobody knows it yet. It's exciting for us because we think we have something. We've got to get out and tell that story, get the institutions and the market looking at it. That will ramp up liquidity. But since it came, it shifted from an investment issuer and now back to a mining a resource company. The liquidity is still quite thin, but I think that'll change. It's interesting because it could be a, a country-changing story. If it's good news for New Pacific and good news for Silvercore, it could be good news for Bolivia. Well, if we do this right, then yes. I mean, Core Lane is in Bolivia, Sumitomo's in Bolivia, Pan America in Bolivia. They're not really their core assets. For New Pacific, it is a core asset. It's relationships. The Chinese have been funding infrastructure programs and working with the government over the last 10 years. These people who we bought this from have been working with the locals. They own a mill there. They employ them. They're in the same area. They're employing people, they're paying taxes. Governments usually don't bother you if you're employing people and paying taxes. That remains to be seen, but the relationships are good right now. We just hired someone who is a Bolivian who has really good ties to the Bolivian government, Carolina Ordonez, and we're building a team around this so it will work. And you're right, if we're successful, be like the Lundins or the Friedlands who go into these remote areas, but they make it work. We're not afraid of these kind of jurisdictions. Gordon, it's always a pleasure to speak with you and see you. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Thanks as always for having me, Ellis. It's always a pleasure. I've been speaking with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvacorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SBM. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a discussion with Brent Cook an independent exploration analyst and geologist with 30 years of experience in both property economics and geology evaluations. He's a newsletter writer and the editor of well-respected explorationinsights.com. Today I'm speaking with Brent at the Sprott Vancouver Natural Resource Symposium. Brent, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Good to see you again. Now, typically you're pretty negative about most companies. <laughs> However, having said that, this conference is a little different. Brot's involved in most, if not all, the companies here, and they do a lot of due diligence before they put their money into it. doesn't mean it's a sure thing. You put a lot of due diligence before you put your money into anything or make any kind of recommendation whatsoever. Why is potentially this conference and these companies less of a risk than most of the other companies or 90% of them out there? Well, certainly you've got you know Rick Rule on charge who has been doing this forever and is probably the best in the industry. They've got a fantastic analyst in Andy Jackson. Most of the stockbrokers that are at Global are either engineers or geologists. So you've got all those screens to start with, and that's why there's such a high-quality group of companies. I mean, I come here, and there's probably six companies that we own in, in our investment letter. No other conference can we come to and say that. So consequently, it's probably a more positive session than it is at some of the other places I've heard you speak. I would say so, yeah. And I, and I think we're seeing the start of something different right now. I get the sense that discoveries are going to start to matter. We're seeing 
companies really rock it based on good drill holes, good surface samples, and that's interesting. Unfortunately, half of the ones that are rocketing up are collapsing you know, within a couple of weeks because the next results aren't good which is what Joe and I come in, where we come in. Uh, we avoid a lot of those, hopefully. Now, I spoke with a group of journalists recently when I was traveling up near the Arctic Circle, and we sat amongst ourselves having a beer, and we agreed that most of these projects will never, never go into production. That doesn't mean you can't make money. You're quite right. We've made good money on projects that ultimately failed. The key to, to doing so is there was a project in Dominican Public. I know the geology. I've worked there. They put in a hole. It was a really nice hole. We bought the stock. It went on to triple from there, or more than triple. But as the drilling started coming in, we started seeing evidence that the size of this potential deposit was becoming limited. So we sold out, made really good money on it. Ultimately, the stock fell back down to its original price. And it's come back some, but we made good money on something that ultimately failed. And that happens a lot. You have no more loyalty to those companies after that point, do you? Loyalty? don't have really loyalty to anyone. No, I mean, we're in it for the money. I want to be decent and honest with the, the companies, but I'm honest. I say, this is why we're buying it. This is why we're selling it. This is the problem we see in it. Am I missing something? I mean, this is a discussion back and forth. What kind of questions are you getting in some of your sessions here at this particular conference, and, and how does it compare with questions at, at other conferences or previous times? Well, we always get questions from people on companies they own. And what I'd like to do, and should do more often, is say, why did you buy this stock? And you'd be surprised how many people really don't know why they own the stock or what they expect out of the stock, what they expect out of the news release. They just bought it because their broker said it was great or there's some good soil samples or whatever, but they don't have a concept of what it's going to take to make this thing work. And that's where the mistakes come in. Why do some company stocks potentially take parabolic rises, stay there for a while, back off a bit for no apparent reason, and others do the same sort of work, exposure, promotion, what have you, and they don't. Certainly, certain companies are much better at promoting their story than others. Some pay newsletters to put it out there. Others don't. Some are really poor at promotion. They can't put out a news release that makes sense. That has a lot to do with it. Now, you can look at promotion any way you want to with a slanted eye with a little bit of reserve, but if any of us could turn water or sand into gold through alchemy, nobody knows about it and nobody will purchase the stock hypothetically. Promotion, while we, some of us might raise our lip at it, it's necessary, isn't it, to some degree? Most certainly. Most certainly. I mean, there's 1,500 or so companies out there in the junior exploration sector. You've got to get your message out to some, just to get noticed above the, the, the crowd, if you will. So it's very important. I think ultimately as well, even with newsletters and such pumping phony stories, fake news, that sort of thing, ultimately reality sets in and those stock share prices will go back to their intrinsic value, which is usually close to zero. So you got to know what's happening and, and understand the basics behind it. Is this company and their project good enough to be bought by a major? Or is this being promoted and you want to get out quick? Or is it going to fail and you want to get out because it's failing? Do you ever look for a level of promotion when you get involved as a major shareholder or a significant shareholder in a company? I don't. What matters to me is that the company is honest, that people are competent, they're doing good work, the money's going into the ground, and they have a good sense of what they're looking for, what it's going to take to make a discovery, and the ability to communicate that to shareholders. It's my sense that I'm seeing a lot of larger projects with larger grades, or at least drill results, 
that I've never seen before coming out of Quebec, coming out of various jurisdictions around the world. Am I just seeing things differently or how is this changing from two to five years ago? Well, you're right. Recently, I have seen that as well. There's there's some better results coming out. A lot of that has to do with this money that was raised back in 2011 and 12, and a bit was raised last year, finally coming to fruition. Uh, they're still drilling. And the companies that raised a lot of money to last a few years had a good project to start with. You know, it's often the first round of drilling only kind of gives you more information. It sort of allows you to rejig your hypothesis or test your theses, and you come back with a new thesis, and it might be that second round of drilling that actually finds the deposit once you get a better understanding of it, because you need that third dimension, and you can't really get that without drilling. That makes a lot of sense. I've got a question for you since I'm just a journalist and not a geologist or a mining engineer or any of that, not even an expert. Let's say you're getting a gram or two or three grams per ton over a large, large, large land package. Still seems like not a big deal to me. Is it, if it's near surface, let's say? It could be, and that's a good question. When you get to a gram per ton at surface, that starts to get interesting. But it comes down to metallurgy. Is it recoverable? If it's locked up in sulfide, pyrite, that sort of thing, it's going to take a lot more energy to get that gold out. So a, a gram deposit at surface that's complicated metallurgy doesn't work. But if that iron pyrite has been weathered and turned to rust, that liberated the gold. Basically, Mother Nature liberated that gold. Then it's a lot easier to get. And a one gram per ton deposit oxidized, rusted out at surface becomes very interesting. What about a company with a massive project, a junior company, let's say they have 400 to to 500 million shares out there like one of these Australian companies, but I'm talking about Canadian companies. Generally, when you see that many shares out in a Canadian company, it tells you that they don't care about their shareholders or the shares structure. Structure is really important in this. You want to be in a company with a tight share structure and not too many shares out when that discovery hits, so it really ramps it up. And that's what you really want. And when you're dealing with a company with 400 million shares out, it generally means they financed a number of times over a number of years, and you're sitting there as shareholders that are just waiting for a reason to sell. So do you think the entire ASX is kind of worthless? No, I don't. We own a number of ASX shares. Ultimately, it comes down to market cap. And we own a number of Australian-listed companies. But again, they've got to be onto something that's big enough that a major will buy them out at a premium, and it comes down to market cap. For instance, we own Gold Road Resources. We've owned that for quite a while, and it's done quite well. They've made a discovery. Gold Goldfields came in and bought a deposit of theirs. They've got the rest of the belt. They're well cashed up, but they've got a lot of shares out. But that's okay because it comes down ultimately to the market cap, the valuation being placed on the company. Seems like I ask you this next question every five years or so. Uh, where are you looking in the world for opportunity? We're not specifically region specific. It's more about the deposit we're looking for. And certainly we're not going to be in Afghanistan or Venezuela anytime soon. But we'll go anywhere where there's a rule of law and there's a major mining company that would want to be there and would buy that asset. That's sort of our criteria as to where we will look and won't. There's a company that Silvercore has invested in to the tune of about 30%, and they have a what they claim is a significant asset in Bolivia that astounds most geologists. Is that an environment you'd be comfortable in potentially? Well, that's a good question, Alice. I just learned about it this show as well, and I'm intrigued. 
I'm intrigued. I've never been positive on Bolivia, but things change. They've got what looks like a nice deposit, and I'm intrigued, let's put it that way. In some cases, maybe geology can trump jurisdiction. I don't like that word, but I think still it comes down to can you operate in Bolivia? Can you build a mine there? If they're able to demonstrate that, yes, they can build a mine, the geology looks good, and it's worth a shot. Well, Brenda, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Thanks, Alice. Good to see you up here. I've been speaking with Brent Cook of ExplorationInsights.com. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced last year that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Patrick, welcome back to the program. I noticed you're doing quite a bit of media right now. Some of it is sponsored like ours, some of it is not, but it's helpful in getting the word out. And as a shareholder of Pure Energy Minerals, I certainly do appreciate that. The season, I think, the summertime has led to a number of interview requests. As you point out, we're sponsoring our appearance in some media, such as people can find us on Stockhouse as a result of that. And we just did a nice interview with one of the Stockhouse writers. We also did a piece with Northern Miner, and I think it's topical, of course, as it has been over the last year or two to talk about lithium and electric vehicles and new energy stuff, and we're happy to do it as well. It gives us a chance to talk about things that are perhaps tangential or a little bit more philosophical about this kind of exciting space that we're in. What many people don't realize is that publicly traded companies, Patrick, have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to get the word out. You can be an alchemist turning sand into gold. And if no one knows about it, big deal. You're absolutely right, Alice. We have to be careful marketing, of course, because of the continuous disclosure requirements and the obligations under the securities regs. But at the same time, I find many times the shareholders just want to sort of swap ideas with us and hear our thoughts on some of the topical things in the field. And so this gives us an opportunity to do that. And then for those people who are sort of mavens on lithium batteries, electric vehicles, there's content like Benchmark Mineral Intelligence with whom we did the world tour earlier this year. And they doing a feature piece on Pure Energy and their quarterly report coming up as well. That gets a little bit technical and a little bit nerdy about the lithium markets, but again, it's the kind of stuff that we find a lot of uh, investors are interested in reading. I know that Simon Moores and Benchmark have quite a large following as they are the unequivocal experts as far as research and analysis in the energy space. Again, I'm glad to hear that you're getting that kind of exposure. Well, I had a great interview with Simon Moores at Benchmark, and I had to chuckle. He asked me at one point what we thought our view on lithium pricing was, and 
as I told him, he's the expert, but we did swap, you know, stories back and forth and perspective. And I think the overriding reality is that the demand for electric vehicles is strong and growing and the lithium supply isn't quite keeping up yet. So as a result, we see a great price outlook for lithium and we believe that's the kind of motivation and incentive that will help companies like ours continue to advance. And it's an exciting story. And as I said, fun to talk about it with experts like Simon and his team. And when you're interviewed by expert journalists interviewing someone as knowledgeable as yourself, it certainly does help shareholder awareness. We never really talk about that factor very much on this program. The lithium space is indeed story-driven as well. We've seen a fair amount of activity with your stock lately. It's certainly trading. In my opinion, lithium is still tied in movement with regard to gold, only perhaps conversely. When gold moves up, Lithium stock prices may move down and vice versa. This is just what I've noticed lately, and I've been looking more closely at it since I've become a shareholder of Pure Energy Minerals. What an interesting perspective. To tell the truth, as you know, Ellis, I'm kind of an old gold guy as well, and I hadn't looked that much at the correlation, but you know, it kind of makes sense. We have gold out there as a hedge against uncertainty and risk and fear, as it were, and with all the sort of volatility in the world, we've seen that sort of seesaw up and down of late. And of course, lithium, a little bit more of an indication of where the mainstream economy is going, its energy needs are going. And of course, there's a relationship maybe to oil prices and things. Uh, I think you're probably right. When people feel good about the economy and are inspired by the message from guys like Elon Musk, the super future that lithium batteries are going to help realize, that gets people excited. But then when they worry about North Korea launching nuclear missiles, maybe it, it makes them nervous and they focus more on gold. So I do see a bit of that seesaw. And frankly, uh, as I said in, I think, the interview with Benchmark, the interesting thing right now is that the lithium fundamentals for the larger industry, batteries, electric vehicles, I just don't think they could be better. I mean, we've seen such an adoption now across the world's markets. We've seen the major car companies join the fray for electric vehicles. I really don't think that could be much more solid. And yet, we being the growth sector, as it will, the sort of speculative side of growth stocks in Canada in particular, are a little bit more cyclical based on sentiment and risk on versus risk off. And so we battle a little bit in that cycle. And frankly, we do our best to keep the shareholders informed, to deliver real results. And we hope that translates to an appreciating overall value market capitalization of the company. But it's not like we can focus every day on something that would move the share price. We believe the fundamentals take care of that. But we do live within these cycles, cycles upon cycles, really, Ellis. And we try to manage that the best we we can. And again, we think having two great lithium projects and advancing them kind of at the same time is the best thing we can do for the future value of our company. I was talking with some of my fellow resource and mining journalists recently, and we were all saying that many of these projects will never go into production, but they are stories, stories that can attract a market perhaps, and it's risky to invest in some of the companies in that regard. What I can say about your company, Pure Energy Minerals, is that you focused on production. You have a potential offtake partner in Tesla right there in Nevada. You're right, Ellis. People kind of want to hear the story, but they want to see some reality with it. And so we've tried to set some milestones and to deliver to those milestones. And of course, recently in Clayton Valley, we published the much-awaited numbers from our preliminary economic assessment, and that's gotten things moving, gotten some exciting times for us. And then we've just kicked off work, the surface exploration program at Terracotta in Argentina. So we see this particular summer as a ramp-up period, really, to be ready for the northern fall, the late third and fourth quarters, when we'll 
get out and to do a little more marketing and, and be reporting on the results of the things that we're sort of kicking off right now in Clayton Valley and at Terracotta. We haven't spoken about Terracotta in a few weeks. What's going on there? We just press released, Ellis, that we've kicked off that surface exploration program in Argentina. and It has been the winter down there, and we waited out a little bit of snow and, and so we could get the teams mobilized a couple of weeks ago. What we're doing first there, Ellis, is a type of geophysics from the surface that looks down a couple hundred meters for conductive zones. So conductive zones, as you can imagine, might well be salty water. And of course, salty water in the Puna of Argentina very often means lithium. And we've seen previous historical work there that demonstrated a conductive zone down there, an attractive potential drill target. And we've gone in there and laid out a grid to conduct electrical soundings to measure the conductivity at depth. And we look forward to reporting on those results in just a few weeks. It's beautiful data because you can kind of see these salty zones down there that are the sort of tantalizing thing that we lithium brine explorers look for. So people should look for that news in a few weeks as we report back on that geophysics and just sort of ramp up to probable drilling there late in the year. Any updates on the Clayton Valley project? Clayton Valley, of course, we're wrapping up the technical report, which will be filed in a couple of weeks there from the PEA. And next week, we're convening the entire engineering team with our friends and providers from General Electric on their water treatment division and also Tonova Advanced Technologies on the solvent extraction. The guys who helped us develop that flow sheet that we reported on. And we're putting the whole team together in Denver next week for a couple of weeks. Very important because that's all about the scoping and initial design of the pilot plant that we intend to begin permitting and planning and moving quickly towards construction of the pilot plant in Clayton Valley. So next week's going to be a sort of get all the heads together in one room and get that pilot plant mapped out. So we're very excited about that as well. Patrick, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Thank you, Ellis. Always good to touch base with you and swap back and forth uh, our own stories from what we've been up to in the industry. Thanks again. Be sure to follow all the latest Pure Energy news, including what we discussed today, by going to their website, pureenergyminerals.com. I've been speaking with Patrick Highsmith, CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture exchange is pe.v and in the u.s is p-e-m-i-f listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website ellismartreport.com and download the entire ellismart report on itunes did you hear something worth repeating find all segments of this program on our website ellismartinreport.com i'm ellis martin Join me for a conversation with the mercenary geologist, Mickey Fulp. Today, we're visiting at the Sprott Resource Investor Symposium in Vancouver. Mickey, welcome back to the program. Uh, thanks a lot, Ellis. Now, I was thinking of taking a trip over to Serbia this summer just to look at a borate project and visit mm-hmm. with a geologist I know over there. Mm-hmm. You've been there. I have not. What can I expect? And, you know, take us back a few decades to when it was really dicey over there. Uh, Dave Cole from uh, Eurasian was telling me that he was one of the crazies that went in there and tried to do business and succeeded. Well, and so Dave was probably a half a generation later than the first people I know that went over to Yugoslavia when it was still Yugoslavia before it started to break up at all. Two or three geologists are my age, and to put it in perspective, Dave Cole worked for me for a while at Newmont back when it, I think it was his first job. So I probably got 10, 10 or 12 years on Dave. But guys at my age were working in Yugoslavia, and 
when it was starting to have problems, you had to get permission to go from village to village as you're doing reconnaissance exploration. And as many places in that part of the world during that period of time, you checked into a hotel, you turned over your passport to local police until you were ready to leave, at which time you got permission from the government to travel to your next village and they gave you your passport back and you did the same thing in the next village. So interesting part of the world, I would say. And you're talking about Serbia now, and of course Serbia came out obviously after the whole Civil War thing, damaged, but probably one of the most viable republics in the Balkans. World-class borate deposit that Rio Tinto is involved with, I think, still involved with, certainly discovered by Rio Tinto, and world-class porphyry copper deposits, of which the most famous and one of the best discoveries during the bear market was reservoir minerals, a very high-grade copper gold deposit that is now owned by Nevsun and Freeport still under owns the underlying porphyry below that. Can you give us a story about your travels in that part of the world? Well yeah so I'll give you a story about Kosovo and that's Pristina and the newscasts coming out of Pristina are quite amazing I would say. They've taken the old Bloomberg model of the hottest smart women in the world and taken that up a step if you will. But the thing I remember most about Pristina was coming in from the airport. You know, it takes a bit. I think I flew from Albuquerque to New York to Paris, one other city, before I got to Pristina. You come into town and there's this giant statue in the main drag there, and it's Bill Clinton. I think it must be 12 to 15 high foot metal statue of Bill Clinton, and he's got his arm up in the air, and it's waving back and forth. It actually moves? Oh yeah, it moves (laughs) 24-7. And they love Bill Clinton there because he's the guy that saved Kosovo from the Serbs. And Kosovo is a secular Muslim society made up of many Albanians, and those Albanians basically were dislocated, had to, were refugees. They went to Albania and and then they came back after the Civil War ended. Fascinating. I had no idea. Now, are there any opportunities in mining in the Kosovo area? Well, so the company that I own there, and I'm actually a a founding or seed stock shareholder, I can't even remember, from about 2010 would be Avrupa Minerals. And they have made a discovery, a gold discovery in Kosovo that running the prospect generator model, an Aussie subsidiary of Tissen, the giant German mining conglomerate, now owns the majority of that. He's drilling that out, and historically, some of the world's largest lead-zinc deposits, Mississippi Valley-type lead-zinc deposits, operated by the communist regime, and now a still government-controlled lead-zinc operation in Kosovo. So certainly potential in Kosovo. Is it hard to take away the communist model out of some of these Eastern European countries? I mean, they're in a capitalist system now, but still... uh... Generally, they don't savvy capitalism, I would say, so the bureaucracies are still in place. For instance, I visited a historic lead-zinc operation there at one time, one of the important ones in the world called Trepchka, and it was quite amazing, a bunch of miners that were getting 
pretty long in the tooth, if you will, but they were still employed even though the mine was not producing, the mill was shut down. Still employed and basically they screwed off all day, sat around and smoked cigarettes until the bosses came around or the tour group came around and then they would all stand up and try to look busy like they were actually doing something. So I think it's very difficult for people that still live in those environments to, they don't have an understanding of capitalism and productivity that we employ in the West. Doesn't that make it risky for an investor, a Western investor? I think anywhere in the world outside of perhaps North America carries some semblance of geopolitical risk. I'll be doing some interviews over the next couple of weeks about geopolitical risk in various countries, and I've got a whole list of countries where resource nationalism, risk, regime change, policy changes, mining law code changes have hit over, say, the last year or so. We haven't heard too much in the former communist republics or oxymoron a communist republic but i notice you let that fly so i'll correct myself there i tend to stay away from the stands i tend to stay away from countries that were for the most part in the soviet sphere i think kosovo is the only one i've owned some stock in a company in armenia before lydian but they've got stung a couple of times by the armenian government so I guess I would say it's not restricted to former communist countries. It's a kind of second and third world phenomenon, in my opinion. We're both sitting here at the Sprout Conference, and what are you looking forward to for the rest of your stay here? I'm looking forward to spending some time the weekend in Vancouver. The weather here is marvelous. We've got the Capitalism Morality Symposium on Saturday. I speak at that, looking forward to that. Giant's a, and I say this tongue-in-cheek with some love, he's a borderline anarchist, isn't he? This will be populated by speakers who embrace the title of anarcho-capitalist, which I refuse to call myself one of those. I'm a libertarian. Anarcho-capitalist, I don't think, is a very complimentary term. And I'm probably not as far to that spectrum as most of the speakers. But interesting group of people who think outside the box and speak about things freely and and perhaps aren't always politically correct in their views. Well, I know that, uh, well stated, by the way, very, very well stated. I know that uh, Giant's not a, a fan of any form of socialism at all, but he certainly doesn't think capitalism works. Well, it, it's kind of like capitalism doesn't always work very well, but what else do we have? I mean, where do you go? <laughs> there are no real alternatives because every other form of economic, what's the word I want, ideology, basically involves some sort of collectivism. And human beings are individuals and driven by their own deeds and their own success and success and well-being of people that they love and cherish. So perhaps we should separate capitalism from government enterprise or lack of enterprise and leave it as an organic structure. Well, so there comes the anarcho part of it. And so the people that argue on that side of things are often very persuasive. Uh, They're very logically thinking individuals. Uh, As I say, I'm probably not as far to that end of 
what I would consider a very far-right spectrum as some of the other people would speak. I'm a pacifist, but a libertarian, very much embracing on aggression policy, the NAP, if you will. And my motto is, do not tread on me, and I will not tread on you. And I'm going to give a talk called The Unwinnable and Never-Ending Wars of the United States of America. Well, Mickey, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me on the program here in Vancouver once again. Thanks a lot, Alice. My pleasure. I've been visiting with Mickey Fault, the mercenary geologist at the Sprott Resource Investor Symposium in Vancouver. You can find Mickey Fault on his website, mercenarygeologist.com. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.